Good morning, brothers and sisters. My name is Lucas. I'm a pastor here at Grace. I, uh, I primarily serve the Fort Worth congregation, but I'm really excited to be here with you all in Alito. And for those of you who know me, and of course I use this sermon illustration when Pastor Matt's not here and he's serving in kids, but for those of you who know me well, know that I really like buffets. And I was, I was genuinely sad when I thought that COVID had killed them. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about your local Chinese buffet. I'm talking about the high-end resort buffets, the ones where they suggest that you put a glove on as you go through the line. Those are the kind of buffets that I really like. Pastor Matt and I have been to a Mediterranean one in Fort Worth more times than I can count. My goodness, how many Grace Alito meetings we had over the last two years in that Mediterranean buffet. I really like the idea, the concept of getting whatever I want whenever I want. I like the idea of getting whatever quantity I want. If I feel like two plates of lamb smothered in hummus at this buffet, that's what I'm going to get. In the book of Judges today, we see that the people of God are living in the midst of a spiritual buffet every day. And that's the culture that we live in, too. Uh, whatever you feel like that day, you can pick and choose. Just think about what you're getting content and information-wise. A little astrology, a pick-me-up Bible verse, some self-help stuff, an inspirational story, some political wisdom from a Hindu, cultural commentary from Mormons. Social media curates this for you every day. And yes, all truth is God's truth. But it doesn't take very long before we start to see the God of the Bible as just another dish to choose from. And this morning, we're going to look at the lives of the first three judges. This is where the narrative actually begins in the book of Judges. Everything up to this point has been written to help us understand this cycle, which we're going to put up on the screen. This cycle of sin, of punishment, and of deliverance. So look at verse 7 with me. Verse 7, Judges 3. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God, and they worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. So this first phrase... They did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They're not hiding anything. This is the kind of disobedience where if you have a kid, the kid does something wrong and locks eyes with you. They know that you've seen it and they're unashamed. And then the next line, they forgot the Lord their God. This is not uh, translated very well in, in English because of the different words describing God. This is a very personal covenantal name that the people of God forgot. They forgot Yahweh. So this is the name that God revealed to Moses personally. He says, I'm the eternal one. I am that I am. So this phrase, Yahweh their God, has so much covenant implications. It's like saying to your spouse, I forgot that I was married. That's, that's a bad idea. Don't try that. But even worse, in that phrase this is not a passive forgetting, like, oops, I left my keys at the house. This is active, willful disobedience and forgetting. What this is, is this is having God as an accessory in your life amongst many accessories 
to enhance your life. So if it didn't rain in this time, the people didn't cry out to Yahweh. They prayed to the Canaanite God of rain. If their women weren't able to have children, they didn't look to Yahweh. They looked to the fertility God, Asherah. They never stopped believing in Yahweh. But hear this, church. They stopped trusting in Yahweh alone. So they believed in him, but they didn't believe that he was enough for every situation in every part of their life. They enjoyed the spiritual buffet. So before we get too far into judges with any kind of arrogant tone, thinking these people are are idiots and we're just so enlightened, let me repeat that last sentence. Hear this. They believed in him, but they didn't believe that he was enough for every situation, for every part of their life. That sounds familiar to any of our idolatry, the shopping that we do when we're bored or when we're sad. Yahweh is not enough. The way we manipulate people to get them to think a certain way about us so that we feel better about ourselves, that's not trusting in Christ. God is not enough. The way we work ourselves to death, to have money or to have power, Yahweh is not enough. When we engage in half obedience, which is disobedience, because we don't want to look weird to the pagans around us, God is not enough. So, Let's be really humble as we continue on and read in this book. Our land is not filled with bales and asherahs anymore, but it is filled with Amazon packages and broken marriages and trophy wives and vacations and sexual confusion and in many states still, child sacrifice. So so remember the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We're not so different from these people. So we're only 12 words into the first verse. And the first headline that I want you to see from this passage is, do you live like a functional pagan? That's what God is asking you this morning. Are your head and your heart connected? Or do you just eat from a religious buffet? Sometimes the living God. Sometimes the God of your neighbors. Sometimes the God of culture. Sometimes the God of self. Do you just try and get whatever you can from everything? David Wells talks about this. We'll see this quote on the screen. He said, we've turned to a God that we can use rather than a God we must obey. We have turned to a God who will fulfill our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights to ourselves. He is a God for us, for our satisfaction, and we have come to assume that it must be so in the church as well. And so we transform the God of mercy into a God who is at our mercy. Man, we imagine that he's benign, that he will acquiesce as we toy with his reality and co-opt him in the promotion of our ventures and our careers. Keller, Tim Keller says it a different way. He says our, our hearts are like buckets filled with cold water. And if we don't continually break the ice on the surface, the whole thing freezes. We have to remember who we are in Christ. And what made them functional Canaanites, because the people of God at this point are just functioning like their neighbors. And the book of Judges spirals down to the point where the last few stories, including all of Samson's insanity, you actually feel bad for the Canaanites because the people of God are the wicked aggressors and oppressors. That's how bad the book of Judges 
get. So at this point, they begin to be functionally just like their neighbors. What prepared them for this false worship that we see God is angered by, betrayed by, obviously, was their previous half-obedience. They didn't obey God and his plain command to drive the people out and to not mix with them. And this command to drive the people out didn't have anything to do with politics or race or skin color or anything like modern ethnic cleansing. It all had to do with worship. Who are the people of the land worshiping? But they didn't drive them out. They did terrible things. You've, you've, you've heard Pastor Matt talk about it. They took them as slaves. They kept their treasures. They kept their altars. They made deals with them and let them live. And now we start to see this is the cost of half obedience. So these Baals and these Asherahs, we should know who these characters are in the story. They're, they're little G Canaanite gods that the nation of Israel began to worship. And behind the worship of Baal is the worship of Satan. Because every false religion is empowered by him. And, and it's funny, even the mythology of Baal makes it obvious that Lucifer's behind the whole thing. Hear this. In, so in Canaanite mythology, Baal is the son of the main god El, but El is weak and ineffective, and Baal is smarter and stronger and has a better idea of what to do with humanity. It sounds like Satan fan fiction. <laughs> like he wrote his own story where he's the hero, and the best that he can do is to get a few tribal people to cut themselves and cry out for rain. It's pretty lame. So these, these Baal and these Asherah worshipers, the Canaanites, they did terrible things. They ate sacrifices for the dead. They engaged in self-laceration and tons of sexual perversion. And they also appeased Baal by human sacrifice. We actually see in Jeremiah 19.5, it became the norm to sacrifice your firstborn child to Baal. So when the people of God abandoned him, the God of mercy, the God of grace, the God who did miracle after miracle after miracle, this is the kind of behavior they engage in. Violence, perversion, and child sacrifice. And so can I just offer to us that maybe the same could be said about the West violence and perversion and child sacrifice. And so the second headline, man, I'm still in the first verse, y'all. The second headline that I want you to see is God is telling you, commanding you this morning to turn from sin, especially the popular sins of culture. Because most of us here, most of us were born into a culture and a nation that has completely lost its collective Christian conscience. Doesn't mean we used to be a Christian nation, but we had a Christian conscience as a whole that governed many of the policies of this place. But that's gone. And the last five years have been an unbelievable, swift decline. So what I don't want you to hear is some kind of weird far-rightism of you need to be against your neighbor because you don't need to be judgmental or harsh about your pagan neighbors. Christ tells you to love your neighbor. And one of the main ways that we can love our neighbor is by leading a holy and set-apart life. That's what I'm talking about. Let your light shine before men. Being real foreign aliens to this place. Making it obvious that you are simply passing through and your home is the greater city where sin has not stained it. That's what I mean by loving your neighbor. So 
The text begs the question, how effective can your Christian witness be if Jesus is just an accessory to your pagan life? If you and your unsaved neighbor's schedules look identical except this hour and a half on Sunday morning, what does that say about the health of your faith and the reality of God's work in your life? Again, I don't think anybody here is cutting themselves before images of Baal, but doesn't the West bleed itself dry, loving money and using people instead of the opposite, loving people and using money? This book is a mirror. Please don't miss it. That Judges is a mirror for us to look at. We, we, we don't have the kinds of idolatry that they did. We have something worse. The God of our age is the God of self, where you look in the mirror every morning and you determine what's right in your own eyes, which is how the book of Judges ends. The waters that you and I swim in are a filthy, abandoned pool. That's the, the culture that we're in. There's trash in there. There's a lot of algae. There's bodies floating. You can't see anything under the water. And it's one of those bodies of water you don't want to get in your mouth. You ever swam in those places where your you know, mouth closed? God forbid anything gets onto you or in you. One of the ways we can respond to this text and all of the book of Judges is by seeing just how depraved culture really is around us and limit and reduce our exposure to it and our kids' exposure. Reduce the amount of time you spend on the Internet. I have yet to meet a single person who is smarter or better to be around because of the amount of time they spent on social media. Not true. Please, please, limit it. And I, I don't want you to hear this as another call from another pastor to read your Bible more and to get off the Internet. Those are two really good things, but... What I'm talking about this morning is more all-encompassing than just that. I'm asking you to consider who your friends are. Who are the people that you're around? Do they push you to remember God, like verse 7 says, or do they push you to forget who he is? What are your family habits? If you have kids, what do your activities look like? Is everything centered around your entertainment or their activities? I think we need in the West more than just a couple adjustments. I think we need to prioritize Christian community in a way that makes us seem weird to the outside world. And many of you believe that here and do that. I know that. We're blessed to be at a church like this where church community and fellowship, community groups are are stressed to the point I think they need to be in the church. It's a huge part of the Christian life. But many of you are not bought in yet. And you don't quite believe that that's the solution. And so I just want you to be honest with your schedule. (laughs) Think about what you do and who you're around and how you think and what leads your heart Monday through Saturday. And the solution is not to set up a lounge chair by the filthy pool (laughs) and dip your toes in and just hang out but not be in it The solution is to swim in a whole other body of water. You need to be around brothers and sisters in Christ more. And and I just want to give you a a little bit of encouragement when you think about Bible reading. A lot of us have trouble reading God's word every day. Some of us, it's because just straight up idolatry. We're doing something, 
that's not of value like reading God's word is. And we just need to swap those things out. But for some of us, we see our walk with Christ as an as a individual private issue. And that's the problem. Because to be successful in Bible reading, you have to have people in your life that you talk about the Bible with. It's not just a, a, a private exercise. You're not checking a religious box with your Bible reading. You're communing with God the Father, and then you're sharing what He has spoken to you with other people in your Christian community. That's the way real Bible reading works. So let me just ask you this. If you feel like your Bible reading has got to that point where you're just checking a box every morning or evening, maybe you are a partaker in the great spiritual buffet. Maybe that's what you're choosing from Christianity is Bible reading. It's just a lot easier to do Christian things with Christian people. It's a lot easier to fast with other Christians. It's a lot easier to have a vibrant prayer life when you're praying with other Christians. It's a lot easier to maintain purity in thought and in action when you're around other Christians who are pursuing the same thing. And this is why your pastors care so much about the culture and the habits of the people of grace because we rise as a group of people and we fall as a group of people. We're not just a band of individuals. We do this together. We each pull each other out of the filthy, abandoned pool of culture when we see somebody swimming in there too long. We call each other holy and set apart. We encourage each other. We remind each other that we're sons and daughters, that God has really purchased us. We remind each other that the power of God dwells in us through Christ, God's Spirit. So we're not half prepared. We're fully prepared for ministry and for life. My point is, if you're a sheep that wanders off, you're going to get lost or eaten. We need to be together as we walk out the Christian life. So, verse 8. That was the introduction. <laughs> Just testing the waters here. Let's see. I'm kidding. That's not. Verse 8. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to King Cushan, Rishritham of Aram, Nahiram, and the Israelites served him eight years. So, the word served here is just not strong enough in the, in the CSB. This is slavery. This is oppression. And, and this king, we don't really know who, exactly who he is uh, from a historical perspective, but his name has meaning. It actually means dark one of double evil or doubly wicked cushion or cushion of double wickedness. So the author is making a clear point. Because the people of God refused to worship him, God gave them over to what they desired which is to be slaves, because that's what idols do, right? Idols enslave you. And so they're now enslaved to this pagan king. So what do we need to hear here? We need to hear a warning that God will give you over to what you do if you persistently rebel against his loving leadership. Verse 9, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. So the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over King Cushan, Rishritham of Aram, over to him, so that Othniel overpowered him. The land had peace for 40 years, and Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So we're in this judges cycle. The Israelites cried out, and God raised up a deliverer. 
And we've heard of Othniel earlier in the Bible. He's actually in the book of Joshua. And I bring that up because it matters. He was alive during the first conquest of Canaan. So you have Moses, right? Moses doesn't enter the promised land because of his rebellion in the desert. Joshua and Caleb go in and they start to take over the promised land. Well, Othniel is alive during Joshua's conquest, which means this. It didn't even take an entire full generation, a full 40-year time period, before the people of God abandoned him. This is just nearly immediate. Maybe 20, 25 years they're now worshiping the gods of their neighbors. And, and Othniel, his, word ha, his name has meaning. Uh, it, his, his name means the power of God or the strength of God. And, and that's important. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis comments, and we're going to have this quote on the screen. There's a conclusion. There's no real evidence that Israel repented. And this is important for it shows when Yahweh raised up a savior for Israel, he was not reacting to any repentance on Israel's part. If anything, he was responding to their misery rather than their sorrow, to their pain rather than to their repentance. So who then can ever plumb the abyss of Yahweh's pity for his people, even his sinful people, who are moved more by their distress than their depravity? Indeed, Yahweh is the one who could bear Israel's suffering no longer. What sheer grace then when Yahweh delivers. Eh, man, hear this. Our primary problem is that verse 9 moves us only to yawn. After all, we already know the theological truth of Judges 3.9. We've read this sort of thing before. So we respond with a pleasant, nodding, ho-hum, isn't God nice? What's for lunch? If we fail to see, to feel, to delight in the miracle of God's own nature, are we not strangers too, rather than partakers of such unbelievable grace? And the author talks positively about Othniel to make a point because each of the judges has quickly degrading character. And then you get to the absolute disaster of a person that's Samson the last judge of the book. So I want you to see this book too, not only as a mirror that shows you and convicts you of the sins you have, the idolatry you have, but this is also a theological narrative. It's not just to keep account of real history, but it's also to show you the increasing sin of God's people and God's increasing grace, which brings us to the third headline from this text. We need to experience the superabounding grace of God. Because there are points in this book that are absolutely horrifying. Points that you're going to think, surely God is done with these people. Surely he's going to pick another nation now. But no. He keeps his promises. We, we, we think, surely he's had enough. Enough spiritual adultery. Enough rebellion. Enough hate. Enough disdain for his name and his power. But no. This, this whole judges cycle, we need to see it as a cycle of spiritual adultery, forgiveness, spiritual adultery, and forgiveness. And man, in a room this size, stats say some of you have been abandoned by your spouse and some of you may be even considering abandoning your spouse. And these are the actual stakes in the book of Judges. So I, I just got to ask you, what kind of grace do you think it takes to embrace a spouse who's committed adultery not once, not three times. What about, what about ten times? 
Are you, are you really beginning to feel the reality of this book? Judges is a corkscrew down into the most depraved human realities. And over and over, God has grace for these people. His, <laughs> it's just good news. It's good news to us because we're spiritual adulterers. We're messes. We're fools. And God has grace for us. Surely we can say, doesn't he feel the same way about us that he feels about these people in the book of Judges? Aren't we Abraham's descendants through faith? When he looked up at the stars and God said, number them, those are your descendants, weren't we there as Christians? Doesn't he say to us, my grace superabounds? So if you're here this morning and you sit here and you feel like your life is an absolute wreck, you, you, you've screwed it up to the point that God has no help for you. He's not there. Know that that is not true. You cannot out his grace. He's still ready to gladly accept your repentance and forgive you on the basis of what Christ has done. King David said, if I make my bed in the darkest pit, God is still there. So, yes, I don't want us to be a people who talk and act and think like the culture around us. I also don't want us to be a people who are continually beat down and useless. Don't let the enemy tell you that you can't be used by God or that God can't forgive you or that God can't heal you from what you've done to others or what others have done to you. The Word says His mercies are new every morning. His Word says His grace is sufficient for every circumstance. Man, well, can we just believe afresh this morning that God really does forgive us? And it's not just a dispersing of forgiveness from some lofty being, but we see the person of Christ humble himself, come into this world, get close to us, experience all the things that we experience, die in the place of his people, rise to new life, and then look at us and say, yeah, I know, Everything about your experience, I know every wicked thought of your heart, I know every bad intention, I still love you, I still forgive you, I'm still pursuing you. That's what I want us to know. And then if you take a look at the second judge, Ehud, man, what a great text this is. I love it. The Israelites did, again, what was evil in the Lord's sight, and he gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho. And the Israelites served King Eglon of Moab 18 years. Then they cried out and he raised up Ehud, a left-handed Benjamite, as a deliverer for them. So the text says that Ehud is left-handed. And it's just not a random comment from the writer of Judges because in Hebrew it literally means he didn't have use of his strong hand. He didn't have use of his right hand. So we don't know what that means. Was he born without a hand? Did he have a withered arm? Was he paralyzed on the right side of his body? We don't know. But he would culturally have been identified as a weak man, a a, a non-threat, a total servant, not someone that would uh, bring the fat king Eglon any kind of trouble. And so that's why Eglon felt so safe around him. So it says that Ehud made himself a double-edged sword, 18 inches long. He strapped it 
to his right thigh under his clothes. He brought the tribute to King Eglon of Moab, who was an extremely fat man. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned, and he said, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king said, silence, and all his attendants left. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his upstairs room where it was cool, and Ehud delivered, I'm, I'm parenthetical here, he delivered the coolest line ever. I have a message from God for you. And the king stood up, and then he reached with his left hand, plunged it into Eglon's belly. The fat closed over it. Ehud escaped. I, I would love to preach a whole sermon on verses 20 and 21, just because, man, it's so good. It's so good. But I'll let the evangelist F.B. Meyer give you two notes on this text that are just incredible. He says two things. One, God's messages leap out from unexpected quarters. And two, God's messages are as sharp as a two-edged sword and cause death. And he gives this, I love this quote. He said, for a Christian, when the Eglon of self has received its death wound, the glad trumpet of freedom is blown in the hills. And then Ehud was gone when Eglon's servants came in. They thought he was going to the bathroom because of the smell of what had happened when he got killed. So they, you know, nervously chuckle outside the door for untold number of hours, finally go in, find him dead. Ehud has escaped. And then this, this left-handed Benjamite then blows a trumpet of freedom, gathers the collective armies of Israel, and they beat Moab and they drive the Moabites out. And so the only reason that Ehud was accepted as a, as a warrior leader was because he killed Eglon. And so everybody follows him. And then we have the third judge, Shamgar. After Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anath, became judge. He also delivered Israel and did just a normal everyday thing. He struck down 600 Philistines with a cattle prod. I want you to notice, as far as Ehud goes, in verses 19 and 26, both times the altars, the carved images, are mentioned. And, and we should know why. It's not, uh, not on purpose even though Ehud did something really helpful for God's people, he didn't obey the most basic command that God gave the people, which was to tear down the altars. He was comfortable with them being there. It was just a part of their everyday life. It says he passed them on the way to kill the king, and he went past them on the way out to, to marshal the Israelite troops. So it's just a little note that's telling us, man, things are getting worse and worse and worse. At this point, the hero doesn't even notice the, the wicked rebellion and idolatry against God. And uh, many of you chuckled under your breath when I read about the fat king, Eglon. It's actually a Jewish tradition to stop and openly mock him by, by laughing and, and jeering and clapping. And the reason is, is because we need to be reminded that our God will never be mocked or bested or surprised or worried by any earthly power. The psalmist says our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And one of his favorite things to do is to take the weak and the discarded and the, and the weird to shame the strong. It, it, Psalm 44 talks about the book of Judges, the psalmist. It says, for they did not take the land by their sword. Their arm did not bring them victory. But by your right hand, your arm and the light of your face because you were favorable to them. So to be clear thus far, 
Now that we're talking about the actual judges in the book of Judges, one has been a man named the power of God, and one man didn't have use of one of his arms. So it's very clear whose power is being flexed here. Yahweh's power. That's what this book really is about. That's what the Bible really is about. This is what he does. He makes nations from barren old women. He sends earth-shattering plagues through a murderer and his walking stick. Talking about Moses. He killed a giant with a river rock and a small undersized boy. And throughout the book of Judges, he commands the use of strange objects to bring about the deliverance of his people. So we see Shamgar use a cattle prod. Jael use a tent peg. Gideon's army later gets these great equipment for war. Jars, torches, and trumpets. A woman use a millstone to kill an evil king. And then, you know, you got Samson who's just picking up whatever. At one point, a donkey's jawbone to kill multiple thousand men. This is what God does. He does this to show his awesome power, not ours. And, and don't miss this because, like I said earlier, if you're too busy swimming in the murky pool of culture, you're going to miss what matters to God. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. They're infinitely better because God never wavers in how he sees reality. He sees reality as the way it really is, completely focused on him. And we waver. And we see ourselves at the center and other people and other accomplishments. But he's the one who always knows whose glory matters. His glory. So some of you probably do need a little more encouragement this morning. Maybe you're left-handed. Or you're a little different. Or maybe you feel like where God has you, you don't really fit. Maybe you're rough around the edges like I used to be, real rough around the edges, or you're, you're constantly reminded about your inadequacies from all the people around you, my encouragement for you this morning is not to just simply see that God uses unexpected people to accomplish great things. He does that, and that's a great truth, and it should encourage your heart. But if you just hear me say that, and you walk out of here, it's not enough. Because this text is pointing to something infinitely more glorious. Because especially Ehud, he's pointing to another judge in Israel who God handed all of his enemies over to and he conquered all of them. And so I want you to hear that God can use you no matter what you've got going on in your life and really forgives you on the basis of what Christ has done. But more than that, I want you to know the most unexpected warrior judge in Israel. He was unexpected in every way. He was born in a backwoods town to an unmarried teenage girl, unremarkable in appearance in every earthly way. Most people missed him. Most people still miss him. The, the kings and the princes of this earth weren't privy to his birth. It was announced to rough and poor shepherds. He was raised in a simple house by his stepdad, to be a tradesman, just a regular carpenter. Have you ever heard humility like this? Have you ever experienced anyone with the power and the greatness and the love that Christ is stoop to this level? And he, he was also raised dealing with all those questions and, and, 
and muttering under everybody's breath that that's obviously not Joseph's son. He's not like his brothers and sisters. And he waits, and he grows in stature and knowledge, and he waits until the time when it became culturally acceptable for him to be a rabbi and to collect disciples and followers. But his ministry starts off, and it's different from every other ministry in the history of Israel because you see the absolute powers of hell mounting a soul unlike anything we've ever seen before. He doesn't just heal a handful. He heals everybody. Everybody who comes to him is healed. So they start to say, maybe this is the Messiah, maybe this is the guy that's going to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem, but it can't be him because he's not a, a warrior king. He's not a military guy. He hasn't driven the Romans out. He hasn't defeated our enemies but the disciples start to, he has to be the Messiah because we've seen nature recognize his voice. And we've seen demons submit to him and flee. And then it looks like the mission has failed. He's, he's killed. And, and the disciples, though, then in that upper room, they begin to remember by the power of the Spirit that this, this man named Jesus said to them, I have the authority to lay my life down. And the, the wild part of that statement, I have the authority to pick it back up. And then they start to see him, and they talk to him. And it's not a ghost, it's not a spirit, it's really him. And he sits with them, and he teaches them all of the prophecies that he fulfilled in the Old Testament, and what all of it means for them and for the future of the world. This unexpected warrior judge in Israel is the king of the cosmos family. This is Jesus. So do we find ourselves in the story? Of course we do, because we're flawed and we're different, but we're still used by God and so loved by him. But the Bible almost always calls us to look past ourselves and to look to Christ, because he didn't fail. He didn't fail to drive out all of our enemies, like all the other judges. He didn't have to deceive and work alone like Ehud did. He obeyed the Father perfectly. And he also, just like the fat King Eglon, he mocked our enemies publicly on the cross. He's the best leader. He's the best judge. He's the best savior because he's alive. And I, I want you to hear this as we go through the rest of the book of Judges. Every other judge, no matter how great, no matter how spirit-empowered, they died. And a temporary leader can only bring us temporary peace. We, we have to have an eternal judge to bring us eternal peace. And we have one. We have one. His name is Jesus. He purchased us fully on the cross. He said, it is finished. He rose in victory and appeared to many. And on this side of the planet, very far from where he walked and his disciples were gathered, his good news still goes out. And it still changes people. And it still transforms lives. And it still encourages hearts. And it still makes dead people alive. So abandon doing whatever is right in your own eyes. Please, because we have a Savior who was crushed for our sins. We have a king and a perfect judge 
a savior and a friend. So remember this morning, unlike the Israelites, we have a better covenant, so we have the Spirit in us. Remember, unlike they did, remember what God has done. Remember your covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. Don't turn to the idols of culture. They're fleeting. They enslave you. One of my, my favorite quotes ever is that idols will bleed you dry as you submit to them, but only our perfect Savior Christ was bled dry for us. So just flee this morning from the polluted waters that you're in, from the idolatry that you've given yourself to, and then remember Jesus, who's the perfect judge, and then with our family together as we respond in song, let's worship Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Father, we, we bow our heads in a posture of humility before you. We say to you, we know that we've forgotten. We know that we've disobeyed. We know that we've ran far from you at times. But praise Jesus that that's not the end of what we know. Because we know, Christ, that you right now are seated at the right hand of the Father, our Father in heaven. And you are putting every enemy under your feet. You fully and finally defeated death and sin and Satan on the cross. So we don't just know that we've done the wrong thing or that we've ran far from you or that we've swam in the filthy pool of culture too long. We also know that you forgive and that you love and that you pursue and that your mercy, we, we will never find the bottom of the depths of your mercy. So we praise you. That's our response. We, we praise you. We sing out. We say, God, our God, you alone are our king. We don't want a political leader. We don't want uh, earthly judge. We don't want we don't want a temporary fix. We need an eternal king. And so we look to you, Jesus, right now, fully God, fully man, bearing the wounds of your people, but perfect in your body. We look to you and we, we call on you to forgive us. Will you forgive us? Will you heal us? Will you heal our families, our hearts? Will we see you for who you really are, not as another option amongst other spiritual options, but the only meal, the only truth, the only living God, the only one who can forgive us and make us new. We praise you, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.